Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solutions L3C. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Bridging Chicago. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, your host, and I'm here today joined by Brendan Kernan, who is a professional development coach with a pretty amazing story. So I know that you're going to be really excited to hear about Brendan and about uh, what he's done and what he hopes for. And so uh, I don't want to keep you in suspense too long, so we'll get right to it. Uh, Brendan, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the Bridging Chicago podcast. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Absolutely. I, I was really interested, you know, when we when we look for guests, we obviously try and look for people with really cool stories, people who are doing things to better the community, to really make Chicago what it's going to be, or, you know, the, the region what it's going to be in the future, who are changing something about, you know, about the future of the city. And so we always try and find guests that we think people will really be able to relate to. Um, and when I was reading your story, I just was really captivated by the things that you've done and, and sort of where you've gone from A to Z. And uh, I can't wait for you to share that with our listeners, but let's start at the beginning. So if you can share with me where you're from and uh, what it was like growing up in that area. Sure. Um, well, I start by reminding people that no matter how much they would like me to, I could never become president because I was born in Toronto, Canada. Both my parents were Irish immigrants, and at that time, they could not enter the country directly from Ireland. So like a lot of Irish people of their generation, they wound up in Toronto. They were, born, they were married on Valentine's Day, and I was born at the end of November. So I'm a honeymoon baby. We moved uh, into Chicago when I was less than a year old. I've been in Chicago ever since, with the exception of eight years that I lived in Arizona. Grew up on the southwest side of Chicago pure Irish Catholic neighborhood and uh, imbued with a lot of the, what you might think of as traditional Irish Catholic values. And Chicago's big on its neighborhoods. And whenever we talk to guests that are from Chicago or grew up here, we always ask them about their neighborhood because it seems to play an important role in um, how they grew up. So tell us about your Chicago neighborhood, what makes it special and sort of the way that you've seen it change over time. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when I started grammar school, I was at Leo St. Leo Grammar School, which is just east of St. Sabina, which is known very much right now because of Father Flager's influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, went to St. Leo Grammar School, graduated from St. Killian, Brother Rice High School on the southwest side. So I was part of the generation, which uh, many people know is the white flight from the southwest side of Chicago. Um, when I was growing up, my neighborhood was predominantly Irish Catholic. And um, a good number of the people in my neighborhood, both on the blocks where I lived, were first or second generation Irish. Um, and of course, 
at that time, there was a lot of turmoil. I grew up, uh, I was in high school at the time of the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, and uh, a lot of turmoil in the country at the time that was also identified here in Chicago. Um, I believe that I'm a much different person now than I was when I was 10 years old for a variety of reasons and a lot of work that I did to get where I am today. And uh, I'm really grateful for all the things that my parents gave me and did for me. And even though I disagree in retrospect of some of the things, I know they did the best they could at the time with the tools they had. Being Irish immigrants coming here to this country in a completely new world was a challenge for them and a change. And I rebelled against that because I wanted to be American, whatever that meant. And that was part of the early days as well. Whenever we talk to, to people of immigrant families, there seems to be they kind of mentioned one of two things, either one, um, what you were talking about, which is a little bit about this assimilation process of, okay, you're, you're here and we want you to assimilate in some way with the American culture um, so that you can thrive and so that you can hopefully have what they didn't have. Um, or they talk a lot a bit about success and what it means to be a success and parents really trying to encourage that to um, make them study a lot more or, you know, work harder um, to get that success. And so for you, did you see that same thing with your parents? Did you see them sort of push you to be what uh, society might deem as a successful human being in that way? Yes, I did. Um, I'm the oldest of my parents' generation and the first one to graduate from college or beyond. Um, so I was carrying the mantle for that. My father left Ireland to support his family when he was 14. He became a jockey in England before he got too big. And my mother lived in a, an industrial town near the border of Northern Ireland. And um, she had roughly a second year of high school education. They imbued in me a, a big uh, push to be educated, to have what they couldn't have. Um, when you're talking about assimilation, I grew up playing Irish football. Not American football, not soccer, but Irish football, which is a cross between rugby and soccer. There were Irish football teams on the southwest side that I would hang around with on Saturday and Sundays instead of going to the Little League field. And, of course, as, things went on, as time went on, I did play Little League baseball and a lot of other sports, but my earliest memories were playing Irish football, not American football. Um, also, I think is very common, uh, and I'm not sure if this is immigration-related or generational. Um, my parents were not very emotional or free-flowing with compliments. And so the idea to be pushed harder, much of that was my own doing because I wanted to please them. But I didn't really know what I was doing to please them other than try to get good grades and understand a little bit more about what they wanted. And that kind of fits into you know where changes and courses my life has taken over the years since, um, since I was very young. Yeah. And um, the other thing that I would ask you about in your, your youth, and then we'll move on a little bit, is, um, you know, a lot of times the oldest kid is responsible for the younger ones, kind of bringing them along, helping teach them, helping take care of them. Was that something that you were expected to do as well? Well, I'm an only child. Oh. So despite coming from Irish immigrants, uh, you would think maybe with a big family, but I'm uh, not only my honeymoon baby, but I'm the only one. So uh, I took pretty good care of all my siblings. <laughs> <laughs> there, your parents were like, hey, we got it right. We can stop. 
hey, you know, I never thought about it that way, but I'm going to start using that. There you go. <laughs> well, my parents have four. So. My mother did lose a couple of babies. She had a, a couple of miscarriages when I that I can vaguely remember as a young child. So it wasn't that I was planned to be an only child, but yeah. it just turned out that way. Yeah. Well, that, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, having siblings, it's like weird to think about, you know, just being an only child and what that would be like. And um, I certainly think that most people would expect an Irish Catholic family to have more than one. But, um, but especially we'll, back at that time. Yes. Yeah. We'll see how that may have uh, impacted your life as you as we go on here, because um, I think that might be an interesting piece to to look at. Well, one way that it, it had an impact was that I have four children, <laughs> which when my uh, when my kids were in grammar school was unusual because family sizes had downsized quite a bit by the time uh, my kids came along. It's interesting how like it, it goes back and forth with that, where it's, you know, kind of like phones. They start out, they started out huge and then they got small and now they're getting big again. And now we're talking about going back to smaller again. And so, yes. you know, those things kind of change over generations and it's really interesting to think about uh how that has happened and now uh i i know that in the uh gen in the millennials and younger it's sort of less people are getting married they're waiting to have kids maybe not having kids or having fewer kids and so that seems to be the trend right now um but it's interesting to think about where that might be in the generation following mm -hmm. yes so you mentioned that you were the um, the first of your family to graduate from college. And so uh, for you, I see that you went to Loyola here in Chicago. So you wanted to stay local. Was that a decision yes. to stay with your family? Was that a decision because of Loyola? Or, or how did you make that decision? It was a complex of things. Part of it was um, my parents saying that they couldn't afford to send me away to other schools out of state. Um, they liked the idea of a Catholic education. Uh, as it turned out, I had 19 years of Catholic education from grammar school through law school. Um, and I think that was important to them, that I, I continued to have a Catholic education. And it was local, so it was close enough for me to come back home every couple of weekends or for a while every weekend um, and not be too far away, but still gaining a little bit of independence as I went to school. So... Being close to your family, obviously, you learn a lot from them. But I wonder, you know, as you're getting educated in in systems that your parents wouldn't have, were you able to teach them things? Were they able to learn from you? Uh, not just about maybe like math or reading or whatever, but even just about sort of the way that the U.S. worked or the way the world worked or the way Chicago was? Um. Yes, I was. But it was more, I realized that I wasn't getting anywhere by talking with them or arguing with them. And, you know, I think everybody goes through a phase in their lives when they're in high school and in college where they know everything in the world. They're the smartest person in the world. And um, as we get a little bit older, we realize that our parents are smarter than we thought and that maybe we weren't quite as smart as we thought. And over the years, uh, I do think that my actions, things that I did and the way that I behaved differently from what they expected um, was, uh, was teaching to them. My mother and I in particular got very close. My dad died in 1991 and he was uh, very taciturn, very um, 
unemotional and he was the type of a person who would never compliment me on anything. So I, I didn't know exactly how I was going to, uh, if I was pleasing him or if he was proud of me. The interesting thing was that at his death, at his wake and funeral, many of his friends came up and told me how proud he was of me. But he would never tell me that himself. Yeah. Uh, my mother would tell me that, and I discounted a lot of what she said about that uh, because she's my mom. What else is she going to say? But I, I got this feedback later on, and I was both saddened and appreciative, um, saddened that he couldn't tell me that himself. Uh, and I, I buttressed that in my discussions with my mother for the next 15 years of her life to, uh, to, to build that relationship and show her how I've changed more by my actions than my words. And I wonder how, when you're deciding what you want to do in life and as far as education, deciding to go to law school, I mean, I, I work at a law firm, you know, law firm, uh, SATC Law, is a parent company here of the podcast. And, and it's interesting to hear about why people choose to be attorneys. And um, I think it always boils down to wanting to help, right? We, we wanna be there for people who need uh, a resource, who need someone to come alongside them and, and make sure that they have what they need and, and that they can have someone in their corner really. Um, and people do that in different ways and people kind of do that in different um, areas, whether you know you do commercial law where you're helping companies or you know real estate where you're helping people maybe buy their first homes or you know whatever. Um, but for you, sort of how did that help shape why you decided to go to law school or uh, or why you decided to, to be an attorney? I don't know that I was that altruistic when I was very young. My father was a truck driver, and he wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to be spending my life working as hard as he did for you know relatively little money. I mean, they, they supported me fine, but they wanted something better, the American dream that people have for their children to exceed where they had. And um, so education was, was um, an avenue that they wanted me to pursue, and they were very proud of the fact that I graduated college and went on to law school and became an attorney. Um, even in the choice of law, though, I think it was a, a fortuitous happenstance. The summer between my second and third year in law school, I was looking for a job as a law clerk. And by that time, I had two kids with another one on the way. Yeah, one of my kids was born in each of my three years of law school. Uh, so uh, I was looking for a job that paid. And the, the firm that I uh, connected with was a public finance firm here in Chicago. And it was a niche area. They were a small firm, but even though they had less than 20 attorneys, they were one of the largest public finance firms in the country at that time. After uh, working for them that summer, they made an offer to me. I joined them as an associate upon graduation and started a career in public finance, which I found very rewarding because the nature of public finance is we build things. We have tangible results of the deals we work on. Uh, think about hospitals. Think about schools. Think about airports roads that, that we travel on every day. Those are the types of things that are financed. Public housing. I worked on a lot of public housing deals as well. Um, so there's tangible evidence. And it was relatively conflict-free as far as agitation among councils, a very collaborative um, type of environment. 
And I really like that. I like that much more than the, the nature of litigation. Um, public finance law better suited my personality. I, I'm sure we've all heard old jokes about attorneys and about uh, lawyers that try and just, you know, what they used to call ambulance chasers or, you know, they just wanted to get your case or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's the good and the bad of every, every uh, career. And so for you, share with me a little bit about that, uh, that good and bad. I mean, obviously the good being able to help people, but um, what was challenging about uh, the law field at that time? What, what did you see that you were, you know, hoping to change or hoping not to maybe go down that same path? Mm -hmm. um, the nature of the work was really oriented towards doing some good for the community. Um, the firm that I started off with did not keep track of billable hours, for example which is usually a shock when I tell people about how things work at the firm at that time. But we would kind of weigh the, uh, the type of a deal, how big of a deal it was dollar-wise, how much work was supposed to be done in it, and how much work we did. And it was without keeping track of an hours, it was almost like having two scales and you kind of balance how much time, how much effort, uh, should there be a premium for different tax consequences and that. Um, but I like that approach. The, the difficult thing was that there was still a need that I felt to do a lot of work. In order to be successful, I looked around at the peers in my firm. I looked to see uh, what they were doing. And it was very typical that Saturday morning, everybody was in the office. And that became expected. And sometimes even Sundays were expected in the office, depending on the time of year. And we also knew that the last quarter of every year from roughly Labor Day to January 1st, was very busy because especially investment bankers wanted to get their deals done and their bonuses ready by the end of the year. So it was a lot of pressure. And that was some of the negative things that uh, I evolved from in trying to get away from. The overworking attitude, the idea that more is never enough, that um, why can't I build 28 hours a day? And uh, how can I get by on two hours sleep and still be effective? Um, and a lot of that was not told to me by my peers or by the people at my firm, it was intuitive. When I looked around at the people in the industry, how I perceived them working, um, that was kind of the trap that I fell into. Now, one of the other things, though, that I did learn from my mentor at my firm was the idea that when there's conflict, when we were negotiating big bond deals and uh, conflict, he had a theory. And that was, before we get into an argument, before we really get into a heated argument, I need to be able to tell you your position to your satisfaction. And you need to be able to tell me my position to my satisfaction. Once we have that common element of communication, we can build on that. But if we're not on that same line of communication to know that we're using terms in the same way, we're going to create a lot of animosity and not get a whole lot done. And the example that I use for many folks is, I'm going to teach you to ride a bike. How do you interpret that? Um, you're going to show me how I can get on a bike and go from one place to another. Describe what the bike looks like. Uh, it has two wheels 
a handlebar and a crossbar connecting the two wheels with a seat. And how do you power it? Uh, with your feet and your legs, well, manpower. Nope, I'm gonna teach you how to ride a motorcycle. Ah, okay. So there's there are parts to everything that we talk about. There's a messenger, which in this case uh -huh. was me. There's a receiver, which is you. And there's a message itself, which is I'm gonna teach you how to ride a bike. If I think I'm gonna teach you how to ride a motorcycle and you're gonna think about a two-wheel bike, what I tell you isn't going to make sense. Yeah. And the quizzical look on your face isn't going to make sense to me. So that's one of the greatest gifts that I learned in the early stages of law, to be able to try to communicate on the same level with whoever it is that I'm communicating with or trying to communicate with. One of the things that I really appreciate is that communication. And obviously, when communication is good, you really appreciate it. And you don't always recognize it. But when it's bad, you're like, oh, man, I wish... They would just tell me what they need me to do or when they need it to get done. You know, I wish they would communicate more clearly or earlier or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so it's one of the things that I think is very recognizable when it's bad, but maybe not so much when it's good. And so can you share about when you're maybe beginning a new relationship, whether it be with a client, whether it be in your personal life, um, when you're beginning a new relationship in some way, um, as far as communication goes, what is really important early on in that relationship to you? I was taught to ask myself two questions when things get sticky. And while the question about a new relationship isn't a sticky situation, I think the same two questions are pertinent. The first question is, what's my motivation? Why am I trying to get into this relationship? Is it a sexual relationship with my wife or, you know, eventually a wife or a girlfriend or uh, with my kids? Is it a business relationship? What do I want out of it? Do I want to uh, invite you to dinner so that I get a deal from you as a client? Um, do I want to just have a good time getting to know you better and have a couple of drinks and a nice meal? Um, is it a networking type of a thing? What is my motivation for doing this? As I approach you, am I looking for a pat on the back? Am I looking to learn something from you? So I need to identify what my motivation is. And the second thing is, what am I afraid of? What happens if my expectations or my motivations aren't met? We go to dinner, I'm expecting you to give me a, a $50 million bond transaction because of your, your business. And first thing out of the box is you start telling me about somebody else that's already got the deal. How am I going to feel? So my fear is that I'm not going to get what I want, or I'm going to lose something that I have. So when I start about the idea of a communication with somebody else, I have to be honest with myself as to what I'm really looking for in this relationship to understand. Now, I can overthink this, and I typically do, uh, and, and look for too much. But if I can keep coming back and be flexible enough to understand that even what I may be looking for now is not what I'm going to find or what I may want to get, a half an hour from now or a week from now, um, that helps bridge the communication gap. You mentioned that you had a wife and two children while you were in law school. I can't imagine that at all. So <laughs> please share with us how you did that because I think about that and I'm like, man, I think about the responsibility that I had and I'm like, 
not in law school, I think in law school, but you know, when I, in my younger years, I'm like, I would never have been ready for that. And so to have that, I, I just imagine it would have been really difficult. Um, and as you're talking about, you know, the challenging things, I think, well, how did you deal with those while having a family? Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that was the most stressful time in my life. But I, I think that there were probably more stressful times later on in my life. But that was very stressful. And um, my older daughter was born in October, my first year in law school. My older son, my October, my second year in law school. And my second son in March of my third year in law school, right before the week before oral arguments for Jessup Moot Court. And I was a Jessup Moot Court participant. Um, and I was also trying to support them. So I was doing odd jobs, working in the library and things. I got by in very little sleep, and I have to admit that I probably was not the most diligent student as far as briefing cases in advance, but I tried to balance things as best I could. Um, I had a fourth child who was born a few years after law school. Um, I was thinking about going back for an MBA at that time, and I figured best kind of birth control is to stop going to school, so I stopped. Uh, and I, I didn't want to deal with all the stress about that at that time either. But... Um, I felt it was kind of expected. And, you know, I said before uh, in dealing with my father and my mother that more was never enough, that more was uh, always expected. And most of those pressures were self-inflicted. They didn't tell me that I had to get straight A's in law school. They didn't tell me I had to get, uh, you know, be on moot court or uh, be a big litigator. They didn't tell me I had to go to a, a, a large firm or a small firm or a solo practitioner. Quite honestly, they didn't know the difference. I mean, they they wouldn't have known the difference of Loyola Law School versus Harvard versus Podunk University in, in some other state. Uh, they knew it was law school, and that was better than what they knew growing up. But a lot of the pressures were self-inflicted. And um, I made law review at, uh, in law school, um, made Jessup competition, and tried to balance family. Now, ultimately, uh, that stress load eventually got to me by several years later, uh, I was worn out. I was exhausted mentally and physically, and it was very challenging. Um, it's like a lot of the things that I've learned in life is that we can do very difficult things for a period of time. And usually if, the, if we have an end goal in sight, then we can usually somehow manage to get through that. And I, I even think of examples like uh, John McCain or General Stockwell, who were prisoners of war in Vietnam. They had an idea that there was going to be an end in sight so they could endure anything. And certainly what I was enduring in law school with with three kids was much less than a lot of other people had experienced in life. So, you know, kind of if they could do it, I should be good enough to do it myself. It was also what I think of as the, the John Wayne mentality. When I grew up, John Wayne was a big movie star. He was a very stoic person and would never admit a mistake, but more importantly, was so emotionally stunted that he became a different person and he wasn't the same person on the inside that he was on the outside. And that caused a tremendous amount of struggle and stress, um, both in the characters that he portrayed in the movies, in his personal life, and correspondingly in my life too. I knew how the stress built up in me over the years. And how did you manage um, expectations that you had with your wife and expectations that she had of you? Um, sort of in your law school years and then in early into being an associate? 
that was a very challenging part because um, I wanted to be the successful lawyer, um, well-known nationally. I mean, it was, it was kind of an expectation I had in my mind. And then I realized that, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there and there's not necessarily, it's not always going to be the case where, whether it's true or not, that I'm the smartest person in the room or deserve the, the most things in the room. Um, and I wound up working an awful lot, which took time away from the family. And even when I tried to do things like coach my kids' little league team and be there for their school events, it was hard because the balance of taking time off from work to go to PTA meetings wasn't done at that time. My wife was a stay-at-home mom, and I was a full supporter of the family, which I took the increasing burden that I had to produce. And, and it was kind of like the expectations were that I would put food on the table and she would manage the household and the kids. Um, and in typical Irish fashion, I was able to cope a lot of that by drinking. I was drinking very heavily towards the end as a way to cope. It helped me relax at night. Um, it, it was a social uh, social release. Um, and it was it was what I saw growing up. I mean, that was common throughout my neighborhood. The Irish culture is one that has a lot of drinking. Although, interestingly, my mother took the Pioneer Pledge when she was 12 years old. And the Pioneer Pledge is that I will never take a drink as long as I live. And she stuck to that. Till the day she died, she never took a drink. But when I was growing up and looking at how alcohol influenced my, my, my life, my community life, um, I missed that message. Uh, I followed my father's role and those of around me uh, and society at large. I mean, when you're going out to do client development, you go out for the, you know, at that time, like a three martini lunch or uh, go out for dinner and have a nice bottle of wine or so. That was the expectation. Uh, and balancing was, uh, had a different meaning than it does today. Yeah. And let's talk about that because um, that's part of your story that I found to be very interesting and part of what I think kind of spurred this other part of your story. Um, I don't want to say the second half, but but certainly a different chapter, at least. And that is um, this, uh, this notion that there can be some work-life balance, there can be a lifestyle balance of being an attorney, because I think classically it has been work, 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 you know, get your hours in, do, you know, you're expected to be working around the clock. And there was no such thing as work-life balance. There was no such thing as, um, as creating boundaries. And for you, um, obviously, you shared about what that looked like in your personal and professional life. And so how did that kind of start a new chapter for you? And what was that chapter um, in your life? And kind of where did that happen? Um, well, I got sober in 1989. I was living in Arizona. I had changed firms. Um, in 1986, it was a tax law change, which dramatically impacted the firm that I was with from law school until 1986. I moved out to Arizona, and my wife at the time didn't move out. She and the kids stayed here. Um, and it turned out that she never followed me out there, as, as was the original plan. So it was a lot of stress trying to maintain two households in two different states, flying back and forth, plus maintaining a busy legal career. And uh, I got to a point where I was having a lot of problems. Um, now, interestingly, nobody in my firm 
suspected that there were any problems, that nobody called me on the fact that uh, I appeared to be drunk or wasn't really pulling my weight in the firm. In fact, um, my last year of drinking, I was the second highest biller in my firm, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, and in early sobriety, that went dramatically downward for a variety of reasons that had nothing to do with my drinking or my getting sober. But it was an eye-opening experience of things that I had to reflect differently on my life. And I met people who were very kind and supportive, who helped me change the mindset, that John Wayne mindset that I talked about earlier of keeping everything close, that, um, you know, the Irish Catholic household of being um, very closed emotionally, not being able to say, I love you to my kids or to my wife or to my parents, um, to open that up a little bit. And also to develop trust, because... Um, in my growing up, I didn't trust a lot of people and I relied upon alcohol to help me keep those emotions in check, but they weren't in check. They were stuffed and, and deep down. And, um, while I didn't have any physical ramifications like many people do, um, I think it certainly would have wound up like that. Uh, by the time my father, for example, was, 58 years old, he had more than half of the stomach removed from ulcers that were caused at least in part by drinking. Um, I was in my 30s when I got sober, and um, I didn't want that to be what my goal was by the time I got to be 60, to have my stomach either there or not there. Um, but it was a transition. It was more emotional and spiritual of a transition than, uh, than anything else. And I had to learn how to trust people. I was very fortunate to come in contact with people who allowed me to open that door very slowly, not be betray the trust, and learning to both like myself and love myself, and that I'm capable of being loved. Because I wasn't sure about any of those things. And I, I think, based on my experience over the years with a lot of people who have mental health issues, and mental health, by the way, inclu I'm including things like substance abuse, and uh, anxiety or stress-related things. Um, and in that broad canopy, uh, I think it's very common that people are untrustworthy and unemotionally available or emotionally unavailable at the time when they're in the midst of, of their whatever their, their drug of choice happens to be. And it takes a process. It takes a long time to start opening the doors of trust along the way. And um, I had a friend who was very instrumental in my early sobriety who reminded me until the day he died that for the first six months he knew me, he didn't think I had teeth because I never smiled. We, we'd get together and uh, I was so taciturn and so wound up that um, I never showed my teeth. And as things evolved over the first few years, he noticed that I relaxed, my appearance relaxed, when my jaw was more relaxed, my eyes sparkled, I showed my teeth. Um, I could joke and laugh at myself. I wasn't taking myself so seriously. Uh, and in my early days, especially as a young lawyer, I couldn't always take a joke. If somebody was trying to make uh, a, a light comment, I would often take that personally and double down on my work effort to disprove them, um, not realizing that they were trying to get a laugh out of me or trying to lighten up so I could be a better performer. And I think that's really difficult because um, sometimes people do see those things that are going on in your life and they don't want to say anything because they don't, maybe they don't want to make assumptions. Maybe they're afraid of, you know, what 
of retaliation. You know, they see those things in our lives that just don't seem right, people who are close to you. Um, and, and they don't say anything. And do you think you would have responded to someone had they come up to you and said, hey, you know, you don't seem quite right. You seem a little off today. You know, are you getting rest? Is something going on? Do you think um, during that time you would have been able to see that for, you know, someone trying to help or trying to come alongside you and tell you, you know, that there are resources out there? Or do you think you would have been more defensive and, and hostile towards that? I'm fine. That would be my response. If no matter how kind and loving you were approach me like that, I'm fine. I can handle this. I can take on all the world's problems. Um, and even in a work situation, if you had more projects to do, I would gladly take them on to show you that I can handle this. Um, I didn't know that there was, um, an element of society that really cared for my well-being and that didn't need me to be working 24-7 or 25-7 um, and that rest and recovery are important. Now, interestingly, when I began running marathons, I learned that one of the more important things, part of a training program, are rest days and recovery days, easy days and hard days, that if I kept trying to run harder and further every day, I had a higher risk of injury and would have a worse performance than if I learned to take days off. Um, I'm always amazed when I see stories of people who had run every day for 10 years or 40 years or something like that, because um, I couldn't do that, uh, because I would be driven to, to the point of injury. And I have been injured over time. But it's, it's the idea that um, two very important elements are rest and recovery. Whether you're talking about marathon training, whether you're talking about a legal practice, whether you're talking about a social situation, um, setting boundaries, being aware of what those boundaries are, being aware of what my core values are. How do I get the best out of myself? Um, and, you know, early in my career, I was able to get by routinely for long periods of time on two to four hours of sleep at night. I know now that I wasn't as productive as I thought I wanted to be or, or expected myself to be, but that was at a stage of my life that I thought was necessary. Brendan, uh, this has been really interesting. I don't want to lose any of your stories. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. We're going to actually turn this into a two-part episode because um, you just mentioned the marathons and I want to make sure we get a full story on that. And so uh, we're going to break this part one. Uh, we hope that you come back with us next week for part two as Brendan shares about uh, starting to run marathons and also about his work with the Chicago Bar Association in their well-being and mindfulness committee. So be sure to join us again next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including
including, but not limited to, or use in, or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.